If you've read, um, if you read some of the classics like uh, the Odyssey and the Iliad, they used epithets. When they talked about somebody, they didn't just say um, Howard. They said long-tried royal Howard, <laughs> or things like that. Epithets, and so uh, here also, Parvati Pate is Shiva. Parvati Pate means uh, Parvati's husband, so it means Shiva. And Parvati and Pashu, what? Pashupati Pate. Pashupati Pate is Pashupati is Shiva also. He's the lord of the animals. <laughs> He's the lord of the animals, meaning us. <laughs> and so uh, the <clears throat> Parvati Pate, Pashupati Pate. <clears throat> so it's all Shiva, all different names of Shiva. Um, so I like to begin every program uh, by quoting my guru, Baba Muktananda, who began every program by saying in Hindi, Sabko Bharasan Mani Kesat Dik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always say that that's the essence of the religion of man, of the, really, of the true religion. It's not about gods and goddesses and worshiping things in seventh heaven, but of worshiping the divine in every person. And that begins with each of us. And to do that, we meditate on the self, and we discover that divinity within. And when we're able to find that divinity within, then we can find it elsewhere as well. And to find that divinity within, the greatest aid, the greatest uh, uh, aid to that quest are the great beings who've attained the goal. These are the sages, the siddhas, the enlightened beings of all the different traditions. And so in these programs, I celebrate them They've gotten, uh, they haven't gotten enough credit. On the one hand, the whole world worships the Buddha and Jesus and Krishna and so on. Uh, on the other hand, though, the whole world doesn't realize that the great beings still exist and uh, they're still available. And only seekers who have a real desire to know the self find them at this time when, when uh, our consciousness is externalized. But I like to celebrate them because when I discovered their existence, that changed my life. I knew immediately I had to go and uh, search for one. And from that very moment. <clears throat> so tonight, I celebrate one of the great beings that that very been very important to me, and that is... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I made a mistake. Let's go on. <laughs> and that, of course, is uh, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, uh, who became, 
who was my first uh, spiritual contact, even before I met Ramdas, long before I met Baba, right? or I had no interest in Eastern spirituality. And I knew somebody who was involved with Gurdjieff during the 60s, and I just made fun of it. And I lived to eat crow. You have that expression, eat crow? Yeah? That's when you uh, have to swallow your words. So then, uh, then I became very fascinated by his teaching. A friend of mine and I studied it intensely and uh, as much as we could understand at that time. Uh, but he was a, a, a great soul. Let's see what other pictures we have. That's him as a young man. This is him as a, a much older man. Do we have another? Or is that it? Uh, he, this was a different incarnation. <laughs> That's uh, P.D. Ospensky, his disciple, Gurdjieff's disciple, uh, who wrote a great book that introduced Gurdjieff to the West called In Search of the Miraculous, which explains Gurdjieff's teachings and, and it's very, very readable. You have to skip certain chapters, which are a little off the planet, but, but in general, it's very readable. Uh, he was a Russian uh, intellectual philosopher, mathematician. <clears throat> okay, so Gurdjieff was, um, he was born in uh, uh, sometime between 1866 and maybe 10 years later. It's very mysterious, hard to know about with him. Uh, <clears throat> and um, in those days, they didn't have all the information they have now. Everybody's got all the information. You can't uh, disappear like that. Uh, but the great beings of the 19th century, uh, Bhagwan Nityananda, we don't really know what day he, when he was born. Uh, Shirdi Sai Baba, we don't really know. Akal uh, Swami, all these guys, uh, very obscure origins. Same is true of Gurdjieff. But he was uh, from eastern Turkey. He was uh, Turkish and Greek heritage. Um, and at a, a young age, uh, his, uh, he became interested in the spiritual quest. His father was a, a kind of uh, bard or singer of tales, so he was interested in these kinds of things. <clears throat> and then he went to the East somewhere um, and studied in various monasteries, I think with Sufis, it seems, uh, in India and in Iran, maybe even in Russia, one doesn't know. And uh, Gurdjieff himself wrote a book called uh, Meetings with Remarkable Men. And there's one thing you get from that book, that Gurdjieff was a great bullshitter. And so, uh, he, and he's very humorous, and you don't know <laughs> what's true and what's false, but it's very fascinating. But anyway, he was a, a great soul, and he began teaching in Russia, and then a group formed, and they went to uh, Turkey, uh, and then the, the, the uh, World War II was going on, and uh, the Russian Revolution, and they had to move through that whole uh, sphere of, uh, of uh, uh, disturbance, and they finally got to, uh, to Europe, and he ultimately began uh, he established an ashram outside of Paris, in Fontainebleau. 
and, um, and traveled several times to New York. Um, I love this quote. He caused a stir among the intelligentsia in New York. I think I've mentioned, including my father's art teacher, Boardman Robinson, uh, who was my father's teacher, who he had worshipped all his life. He learned at the, the um, Art Students League. He studied with him. And I found in the Gurdjieff book that Boardman Robinson was a, a disciple of Gurdjieff. But he never told my father, of course. Of course, it would have been useless to tell my father that. But I told Pop many years later, I said, you know, did you know that Boardman Robinson was a follower? And anyway. <clears throat> the New Yorker magazine noted um, his presence, uh, I think around 1930, calling him a philosopher and mentioning that he held court several times a day in two different child's restaurants. Child's was a kind of, uh, I don't know what you call it. What's it similar to here? I don't know. Anyway, it was a restaurant and he would sit there and people would come to see him all day long. Uh, and he drank endless coffees and spoke to people who wanted to meet him. Um, and the New Yorker says, these people who came to meet him, the New Yorker said, esthetes and <laughs> ladies who think deeply. <laughs> That's because they hadn't seen Barbie. Gotten straightened out. <clears throat> His uh, basic teachings, uh, well, wonderful teachings. Man is a machine, means that we're uh, mechanical uh, and we're wind up toys based on our upbringing uh, and our environment, and we don't really have choice because of that, and we don't realize how mechanical. We are until we start investigating in the work, doing the work. Uh, it, you could say that the 19th century in kind of discovered the unknown secret motives of people and impulses, Freud and so on, of these things that drove people unconsciously. So uh, make, making us mechanical, we're at the mercy of these hidden inner forces. Uh, so you can, develop, you can develop choice instead of being a machine by doing the work, is what he called, we call sadhana, spiritual work. Um, and the work began with two things, self-observation, which meant get back from yourself and observe yourself objectively. This is a wonderful thing if you can do it. Uh, it means see how you react to different situations. In Shiva process, we cultivate this by what we call the A statement, that if people can simply say, I am angry, I am sad, I am happy, I am jealous, if they can bear witness to the emotion that's going through, this is a great self-observation. Because most often, we're not aware of that. Anger comes up, and we just act out of that anger, and we cause havoc in all directions. Or fear comes up, and we act out of that fear, and cause a different kind of havoc. And so 
self-observation means, mean, means simply seeing what is so within. Just as it's valuable in legal case to have a witness who objectively sees what happened, so inside us spiritually, we should have a witness that objectively sees what's going on, doesn't base his self-conception on an illusion, a, a, a false personality, a false illusion. So self-observation, and then the next step is self-remembering, which we would call meditation, meditation on the self. And when I found out about that, I started practicing it uh, long before I went to India. And even when I was in India, I was practicing self-remembering, walking around. And he describes it as a double arrow, one arrow pointing out and one arrow pointing in. And so you don't lose sight of the inward as you go around. We're usually just out here doing this and that. And uh, he said, remember yourself always. Keep yourself in the picture. So keep that double arrow going. It's a tremendous exercise, a powerful meditation in the world. <clears throat> and uh, he said that by, by doing this, by self-remembering, he would say you build certain chemicals, hydrogens, he said. He had it all mapped out certain more refined hydrogens and so on. And we would say you build Shakti, and Shakti must be hydrogens of a certain, <laughs> a certain uh, rarity, you know what I'm <clears throat> Anyway, he also taught what he called the fourth way. The fourth way, um, there's, uh, he said there's the, the, the way of the monk, which is we call devotion, like the Christian monks who tell their beads full of devotion. So it's bhakti yoga. Uh, the way of the fakir, which is the, the way of hatha yoga, physical yoga. Uh, India is filled with fakirs. I don't mean doing asanas. Uh, they're uh, they're strange, doing strange practices. Um, like uh, standing on one foot for 12 years, <laughs> never sitting down for 12 years. Uh, there really are people who do this. And then pen piercing their tongue, you know, with a... I saw one guy out in front of the ashram doing that, piercing, piercing his uh, neck with a thing, you know. <clears throat> and there was, a, there was a short subject of a, a rolling baba who used to roll. He'd go on pilgrimage, but he'd roll the whole way there. And he was a holy man of some sort. So, so, so these are the fakirs. Then, then, then he says, the way of the yogi, which is the way of uh, wisdom, of... Uh, Yana yoga, intellectual yoga. But then the, the best one is the Gurdjieff's fourth way, which he called the way of the sly man. And that means uh, you don't, nothing is visible. You're intensely practicing every minute, but nothing is visible. You don't have to wear a uniform like I'm doing or uh, go around with your beads out showing everyone. 
you know, virtue signaling. <laughs> um, you don't have to do that. It can be completely invisible, but you're on fire inside with inner work. And this is the fourth way. And for that, you could live normal life, but you'd be on fire, invisible to others, but on fire inside yourself. So that was his way, the way of the sly man. Uh, and what else? His, his work consists of waking up and building consciousness and getting rid of negative mental and emotional tendencies uh, and getting rid of leaks. We lose Shakti because of negative tendencies, bad qualities. You know, our bad qualities are much worse for us than others, you know. We, we yell at somebody else, we torture somebody else. That's nothing. It's what we do to ourselves when we get angry and uh, jealous and fearful and depressed is we leak energy. We're just like a system. It's like, uh, like having your heat on and opening all the windows, just letting the heat go out the window, lose all the energy, and then you have to pay the company. <clears throat> so uh, so the, the idea for Gurdjieff was to get rid of leaks. This is a great yoga. This is Raja Yoga, is to stop leaking energy. And if you stop leaking energy, you can start building energy. You know, it's not that we lack energy, it's that we waste energy. And so if you learn how to retain energy and then build it up, uh, it's a great inner practice. <clears throat> he says, you have leaks, you quickly lose the higher chemicals that your practice builds. You meditate and you build up some higher chemicals, you get some shakti, and then immediately you, you have a fit, a tantrum, something, and you lose all your shakti. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and the, the goal is to build a center of gravity and uh, the, the uh, yogis have names for all of these things. He's talking about, uh, very familiar to yogis, uh, the center of gravity or permanent eye, which means that you're always centered in the self rather than going up and down and now I'm this, now I'm that, now I'm angry me, now I'm jealous me, now I'm sad me, now I'm happy me, now I'm, you know, you're always, you're always centered, you never lose it. You might get moods, different moods, but you're always connected to the, uh, to the self. <clears throat> so that's uh, Gurdjieff. So now tonight there's a topic that I want to explore, which is called Essence and Personality. Now this may be, <clears throat> I think it's fun. You ready though? Might have to use your thinking centers. <clears throat> Those of you who don't want to can just meditate. But the quiz will be at the end. <clears throat> so he said that uh, everyone has an essence and then a personality overlaying it. And this will come clear as we talk about it. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll make it really simple. In our terms, I, you, always, you often hear me talk about first education and second education. Think of the education you have in high school and if you go to university and you get lots of information. But nowhere in that, and I had a lot of, of education like that, no one ever told me how to 
move towards happiness, how to control my emotions, how to control my mind, how to work on myself. This was completely unknown. Now maybe it's slightly different now, maybe there's a little more uh, knowledge of this, but in my day, and I think even today, mainly what I call first education. This is intellectual education. And so that is what he means by education of the personality. You can learn everything in the world about something and you know, become a great expert, get three PhDs and write big books, and you've got lots of knowledge, but you haven't worked on your essence. And essence is what we call second education, or we call sadhana, the spiritual work. And this is a different kind of education. And in this kind of education, you work on your, your inner being, on your essential nature. You transform yourself. No one ever talked about, you know, now you're going to take history 101. This will transform you. Now we get chemistry 101. You will be transformed by this course. <laughs> Never happened. Never. And I went to the Ivy League. So it never happened. <clears throat> but uh, in yoga, that's what we expect. Whatever yoga we do, uh, we expect some transformation, some growth. That's not always easy. In fact, it's never easy. Well, it's sometimes easy. But, uh, but it's, it's growth. And whatever you earn, you get. So this is what he means by personality and uh, essence. So... This is from Uspensky. And this, the events are about uh, 1916. <clears throat> Sometime in that. So it's just before the, the Russian Revolution. Uh, in St. Petersburg in, in Russia, Uspensky writes, when Gurdjieff next came to St. Petersburg, he had been in Moscow this time for two or three weeks, we told them of our attempts. And you know, their attempts, they were just attempting to tell their story, to share their story with each other. And they found it very difficult, story of their life. <clears throat> he listened to everything and merely said, we did not know how to separate personality from essence. He said, personality hides behind essence. And essence hides behind personality and they mutually screen each other. <clears throat> One of us asked, how can essence be separated from personality? Gurdjieff replied, how would you separate your own from what is not your own? It is necessary to think, it is necessary to know where one or other of your characteristics come from. It is necessary to realize that most people especially in your circle of society, have very little of their own. Everything they have is not their own, it's mostly stolen. Everything that, that they call ideas, convictions, views, conceptions of the world, have all been pilfered from various sources. He's being a bit harsh there, but the truth is that we are very much the product of our culture. You know, we look back on cultures of the past, we think, how silly that they thought that way. But <clears throat> somebody will look back on us and think, 
how silly we were to think the way we think. <clears throat> so we've been unconsciously uh, created by our culture. That's what comes from outside. But there's also an essence to us that we bring. This is what he's talking about. And all of it together makes up personality and must be cast aside. Must be cast aside. Because true yoga, true spirituality is not about the personality. Um, you can work on the personality, you can improve it, you can increase your vocabulary, you can increase your knowledge, you can increase... Uh, <clears throat> a very good example, uh, I knew a lot of chess players and they would study chess and they studied openings, books and books of openings and they, they would study and know all these moves and then they'd go and play and they'd be able to win with that. But did that improve their beingness in any way? Not in any way. Not slightly. In the same way, when you educate personality, you don't improve your beingness at all. <clears throat> he says, someone said, but you yourself said that work begins with personality. Quite true, replied Gurdjieff. Therefore, we must first of all establish what precisely we're speaking of, <clears throat> of what moment in the man's development and of what level of being. Just now, as simply speaking of a man in life who has no connection whatever with the work. That means a person who's not spiritual. Like 99% of the people you meet, they're just going about their business, trying to hold it together, right? <clears throat> Such a man, particularly belongs to the intellectual classes, is most entirely composed of personality. In most cases, his essence ceases to develop at a very early age. <clears throat> I know respected fathers of families, professors full of various ideas, well-known authors, important officials who are almost ministers, <clears throat> whose essence had stopped developing approximately at the age of 12. And that is not so bad. It sometimes happens that certain aspects of essence stop at five or six years of age, and then everything ends, and all the rest is not their own. It is repertoire taken from books or has been created by imitating ready-made models. Some people in very high office don't have the maturity to admit they lost an election, for example. <laughs> Can't bear it. They, because their essence is the essence of a four-year-old. And this is what happened. <clears throat> so, you know, it's interesting because I, I spent a couple of years in, <clears throat> in academe. And uh, I noticed this... Uh, when I read Gurdjieff, I, I understood something because I, I met a lot of professors, even those who were distinguished, even famous, in some cases world famous, written many books. And yet I noticed a certain kind of uh, shallowness or weakness in them. They weren't what I thought. They disappointed me. They didn't have the nobility of spirit and so on. They had 
all kinds of insecurities and jealousies and stuff like that. And I think this is what he's saying, that they, were, they had developed their personality to a very high degree, but they hadn't done any sadhana. They hadn't worked on themselves. And so their essence wasn't. <clears throat> he says, uh, this is now, it's a little bit of a, an aside, but a very charming story. One very interesting conversation took place at this time, as Spence, he says. <clears throat> I felt everything very keenly during that period. One thing I remember is my feeling that I was unable to remember myself for any length of time. I sometimes felt that I could do it, but then it all went, and I felt without any doubt the deep sleep in which I was immersed. And there's a passage, in the wonderful passage, where he talks about remembering himself, and he's walking in the street and he's remembering, and then he wakes up like an hour later having forgotten it completely, and he realizes, oh my God, I was doing this and I forgot. That's very hard to do, unless you're an experienced meditator, to keep that thread of memory going. It's very easy to lose that. An experienced meditator will be able to hold that. <clears throat> but these failures further increased my bad mood, which, however, as always with me, expressed itself not in depression, but in irritation. He'd be a pretty nasty piece of work, Ospensky. Be nasty. <clears throat> in this state, I came once to lunch with Gurdjieff in a restaurant on a street near the Central Market. I was probably very curt, uh, on, or on the contrary, very silent. He's having a fit. <clears throat> What's the matter with you today, asked Gurdjieff. I myself do not know, said I. I'm beginning to feel that nothing is being achieved. <clears throat> or rather, I'm achieving nothing. I cannot speak about others. <clears throat> but I cease to understand you. <clears throat> Sorry. And you no longer explain anything. You used to explain it in the beginning. So it's blaming Gurdjieff, that's one thing. <clears throat> and I feel that in this way, nothing will be achieved. <clears throat> Wait a little, said Gurdjieff. Soon conversations will start. Try to understand me. Soon all the various threads of our system will come together and you'll understand things more completely. So he's trying to say, calm down. Have a little patience. Everything will be all right. Gurdjieff's words remained in my memory, but I did not go into them and continued my own thoughts. So he wasn't listening. <clears throat> what does that matter, I said. I can't connect things together. You never answer any questions I ask. Very well, said Gurdjieff, laughing. I promise to answer any question you care to ask, as it happens in fairy tales. I used to have this dream that, that I could go to Baba and ask him any question about my sadhana, like, Baba, how far advanced am I? <laughs> Baba, what do I really have to work on? Baba, what's my best quality? <laughs> Baba, what's my worst quality? <clears throat> Do you have any tips? And he would go on and tell me all these things. Never going to happen. <clears throat> so Gurdjieff says, okay, here's, here's, all your Sundays have come. I'll answer any question you want. 
And Ms. Smith says, I felt that he wanted to draw me out of my bad mood. And I was inwardly grateful to him, although something in me refused to be mollified. <clears throat> What's mollified, Premji? Yeah, whatever. Placated, huh? satisfied. <clears throat> you said it. And suddenly I remembered what I wanted above all was to know what Gurdjieff thought about eternal recurrence, about the repetition of lives, as I understood it. In the past, I tried to talk him about it, but he had always changed the subject. Very well, he said. Very well, I said. Ask me what you think of reincarnation. <laughs> is there any truth in this or none at all? What I mean is, do we live only this once and then disappear? Or does everything repeat and repeat itself, perhaps an endless number of times, only we do not know and do not remember it? What's Gurdjieff going to say? <clears throat> but Gurdjieff says, this idea of repetition, said Gurdjieff, is not the full and absolute truth, but is the nearest possible approximation of the truth. In this case, truth cannot be expressed in words. But what you say is very near to it. And if you understand why I do not speak of this, you'll be still nearer to it. <clears throat> what is the use of a man knowing about recurrence if he is not conscious of it and if he himself does not change? One can, one can say even that if man does not change, repetition does not exist for him. If you tell him about repetition, it will only increase his sleep. Why should he make any efforts today when there's so much time and so many policy, uh, possibilities ahead? The whole of eternity. Why should he bother today? <clears throat> this is exactly why the system, that means the, the teaching, his teachings, does not say anything about rebirth and makes only this one life, which we know, and takes only this one life which we know. The system has neither meaning nor sense without striving for self-change. And work on self-change must begin today, immediately. We have to begin changing. Ready? Right now. Yeah, so we change a little bit? <laughs> Ganesh, shall we change now? OK, you promise? All right. Bob would say, bang, bang the drum of Shivo Hum. <laughs> what did he say? What? What? Silver. Away. <clears throat> he says, all laws can be seen in one life. Knowledge about the repetition of lives will add nothing. For a man, if he does not see how everything repeats itself in one life, you know, so it keeps, everything keeps going on and on again and again and again. <clears throat> that is, in this life, if he does not strive to change himself in order to escape this repetition. But if he changes something essential in himself, that is, if he attains something, this cannot be lost. Now, you know, 
<clears throat> I don't know if I agree with that, um, but the, the Christian church sometime in the uh, medieval, early medieval times, around 500 AD, they had one of those conferences, the Con Council of Nicaea or one of them, and they decided there were a lot of Christians who believed in reincarnation then. Why did they do that? Because they were Platonists, and Plato believed in reincarnation. And a lot of Christians, even though Platon was a, a what do they call it? A heathen. <laughs> he was a, well, heathen. Uh, he was a pagan. Even though they still followed Plato and Aristotle, and so they, he, he talked about reincarnation. So there were many Christians who believed in reincarnation there, but they had a conference, and they decided that probably for similar reasons, it's good that people think, because uh, Plato said, how can you attain this uh, truth in one life? It's so complicated. You can barely become a good uh, anything in one life, you know, let alone solve the problem of God. So, but, uh, so they decided that that was therefore outside the, uh, the pale of uh, normal Christian thought. There must have been some heresies that believed in it. I'm sure they got stamped out violently. <coughs> but um, anyway, Gurdjieff continued to speak about rebirth and tendencies that appear and disappear and planetary influences and several other things, other things. I was extremely interested in everything Gurdjieff said. <clears throat> Much of this I had guessed before, but the fact that he recognized my fundamental premises and all that he brought to them had for me a tremendous importance. Everything began immediately to become connected. My bad mood vanished. I did not even notice when. Gurdjieff sat there smiling. You see how easy it is to turn you, he said. He said, see, I changed your mood immediately. <clears throat> but he says, but perhaps I was merely romancing you. Perhaps there is no reincarnation at all. What pleasure is it when a sulky Uspensky sits there, does not eat, does not drink? Let us try to cheer him up, I think to myself. <laughs> And how is one to cheer a person up? One person likes funny stories, another you must find his hobby. And I know that Spensky has this hobby, reincarnation. <laughs> <laughs> so he's jerking his chain, as it were. <clears throat> so I offered to answer any question of his. I knew what he would ask. But Gurdjieff's banter did not affect me, says Ospensky. He had given me something very substantial and could not take it back. I did not believe his jokes. <clears throat> I did not believe that he could have invented what he said about re recurrence. I also learned to understand his intonations. The future showed that I was right. For although Gurdjieff did not introduce the idea of recurrence into his exposition of the system, he referred several times to the idea in speaking, of lost, in speaking of the lost possibilities of people 
who had approached the system and had been drawn away from it. <clears throat> so people who came to the work and then uh, left it at some point, he would say, well, not this life, maybe in some future life. Of course, that never happened here, but, <clears throat> but what happened? So in that context, he talked about it. You like that story? <clears throat> I was going to talk about essence and personality. Okay, I'll do a couple of things. This again from Muspensky. Man consists of two parts, essence and personality. Essence in man is what is his own. Personality in man is what is not his own. Not his own means what has come from outside, what has learned or reflects all traces of exterior impressions left of the memory and the sensations, all words and movements that have been learned, all feelings created by imitation. That is, this is not his own, this is personality. Now imagine you were born into, you were born into a certain life situation. You had certain parents. You had a certain culture that you grew up with, certain influences. Um, but you came a certain way. You could easily have been born into another culture. You could have been born into um, Syria. You could have been born into Canada. You could have been born into Ireland. You could have been born into what's really... Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, whatever. <clears throat> and you would have a whole different set of ideas, a different language. You'd speak a different language. And you'd have a different set of ideas. But you'd still be a, a solid, vital, or peculiar, wouldn't you? So your solid, vital, peculiar belongs to essence. While all your uh, ideas, <clears throat> and that's why he says you have to get rid of personality to get down to essence. You don't really have to get rid of it, you just put it to the side and work on inner growth, emotional maturity, peace of mind. Learn how to quiet the mind. Learn how to make the emotions positive. Learn how not to express negative emotions. Learn how to understand things. Absorb, absorb the teaching of the, the scripture. Learn about the self. He says, a small child has no personality as yet. He is what he really is. His essence, his essence. His desires, tastes, likes, dislikes, expresses being such as it is. You can tell a kid is a solid, vital, or peculiar right from birth, can't you? Have you had that experience? Right from birth, it doesn't take long anyway. <clears throat> but as soon as so-called education begins, personality begins to grow. Personality is created primarily by the intentional influences of other people that is by education, and partly by involuntary imitation of them by the child himself. <clears throat> In the creation of personality, a great part is also played by resistance to people around him and by attempts to conceal from them something that is his own or real. <laughs> that that uh, reminds me of um, uh, a poem by Wordsworth. 
the immortality ode, some of you might have studied, <clears throat> and I talk about occasionally. I always threaten to do a class in it, but I won't. Because Bonnie would be the only person in the class. <clears throat> anyway, you can sign up for the class. Sign up with Bonnie. <clears throat> he talks, uh, Wordsworth talks about how the child comes from heaven trailing clouds of glory, of, you know, a beautiful free being with, with cosmic knowledge. And then as he grows up, he starts to imitate, try to become an adult, and imitates all these constricted people, and then he loses his, uh, his glory. And he says, whither is gone the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? Something like that. And he says, we lose, we lose the light of the self as we become more and more acculturated. I think it's a fair statement. We lose that. That's why we worship babies and little dogs. <laughs> Puppies. <clears throat> so, so, so that's essence and personality. But if you work on essence, then you can become a, a baby even when you're old. <laughs> so I'm, I've got a lot of things about essence and personality. I'll do next time I do Gurdjieff. But I'll do one more thing, okay? And then we'll meditate. And this is uh, a very remarkable passage from the autobiography of John Stuart Mill. You know John Stuart Mill? You do? Yeah, he was a, a, a great um, figure of uh, 19th century England. His father, uh, uh, James Mill, I think his name was, <clears throat> was uh, the lead singer of a rock and roll band. No, that's not right. He was, he was a philosopher. They were <clears throat> he was a friend of Jeremy Bentham, and they created, uh, uh, what do they call it? Pragmat, what do they call it? What is it? Utilitarianism. Utilitarianism. <clears throat> the greater good for the greater number and stuff. And they wanted to change society for the better so everyone could be happy. And uh, he also had a theory of education, as some, uh, some people do. And he, he, he educated John Stuart Mill from the age of two years. He was reading Greek and Latin by the time he was three or four. He was a genius, and uh, he was a child prodigy. <clears throat> and by the time he was 20, he had a nervous breakdown <laughs> from all that, because his personality had built so much, and he had no essence. And this is from his, um, this is from his autobiography. I asked myself, Suppose that all your objects in life were realized. <clears throat> that all the changes in institutions and opinions which you're looking forward to could be completely affected at this very instant. Yeah. Yeah. So if you were, yeah. had political, yeah. Yeah. all the political yeah. justice, it could be perfect justice, the environment could be saved. Um, also, you could be rich. Also, you could be famous. Also, you could have the perfect relationship. Also, everything. 
he asked, would this be a great joy and happiness to you? Everything could come true, all my social programs. An irrepressible self-consciousness distinctly answered, no. So he, he asked his inner self, would I be happy if all these social programs happened? And the answer came, no. He says, <clears throat> at this my heart sank within me. The whole foundation from which my life was constructed fell down. All my happiness was to have been found in the continual pursuit of this end. The end had ceased to charm, and how could there ever again be any interest in the means? I seemed to have nothing left to live for. And he entered a profound depression. Profound depression. And then he came to satsang. <laughs> <laughs> now, he, he, he got out of it, and he... And, uh, it almost seems like anticlimactic. Speaking of Wordsworth, <clears throat> he read Wordsworth's poetry. And Wordsworth's poetry talks about the spirit, the highest spirit. So he became aware of the oneness that's everywhere, and he got awakened. <clears throat> anyway, so he uh, got in touch with essence, in short. So we'll leave some of this con consideration next time. There's much more material than I thought. All right, so we meditate? When we meditate, what we're dealing with? Essence. When you meditate on the self, you're, going, you're meditating on the essence of essences, who you really are. And what the yogis tell us is that our true essence is very beautiful indeed, full of love, full of peace, and full of joy. And that our minds will run us ragged this way and that way, but if we get in touch with the center, the source, the spirit, the core of our being, we'll be full of joy and peace and love. So let's meditate now on the self for 10 minutes meditate on your namo bhagavate nityanandaya